Now on view at SCAD Fash, Manish Aurora's Life is Beautiful. Renowned for dazzling designs and a rainbow of colors, Manish Aurora has brought the talent and craftsmanship of India's rich sartorial history to the global forefront, earning international acclaim on runways across three continents. Designing in India since the 1990s, Aurora's glittering garments celebrate extravagant expressions of self through varied materials, techniques, and silhouettes in a triumphant union of Western and Eastern aesthetics adapted to today's multicultural society with a touch of humor. Find out more at scadfash.org. Support for WABE comes from 100 Miles, a nonprofit committed to preserving Georgia's 100-mile coast. Protecting this critical coastal ecosystem takes all of us. Watch the stories of the innovators and future leaders who help keep our coast flowing at OurGeorgiaCoast.org. From WABE in Atlanta, this is City Lights. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for listening. The American photojournalist Steve Shapiro was celebrated for his work documenting the American civil rights movement, capturing powerful moments, including the March on Washington and the aftermath of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. Shapiro died Saturday from pancreatic cancer. He was 87. In the summer of 2020, while our nation was again loudly fighting for civil rights, I was grateful for the opportunity to speak with Steve Shapiro. He was in town for a shared exhibition with Atlanta activist and photographer Sheila Pre-Bright. Later this hour, we'll listen back to that conversation. First, because their works are hilarious satires of the British social class system, The operas of Gilbert and Sullivan are a great introduction for people who think they don't like opera. To that point, the last time the Atlanta Opera performed the duo's Pirates of Penzance, all five shows sold out. Now, the Atlanta Opera has a new production of the Gilbert and Sullivan hit, Sean Curran is the director. He joins us now via Zoom with tenor Santiago Ballerini, who plays the role of Frederick. Welcome to City Lights. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. Gilbert and Sullivan operas are known for ridiculous twists and turns of the plot. Sean, would you summarize the plot of this opera? Sure. Young Frederick, who Santiago Ballerini plays so beautifully, when when Fred, this Frederick character was a, a little boy, his father said to his nursery maid or governess, I'd like you to apprentice young Frederick to a pilot, meaning the pilot of a ship. 
But uh, Ruth, the nursery maid, is hard of hearing, and she thought he said pirate. So Ruth takes the little boy, Frederick, gets him involved with a bunch of comically useless and tenderhearted pirates, and uh, Frederick signs a contract saying he'll stay and work for them until he turns 21. And the show begins when Frederick is celebrating his 21st birthday and is leaving the pirates when he meets a group of 12 young women, all sisters on the beach and falls head over heels in love with one of them named Mabel. Well, the pirates realize that the contract that Frederick signed says that he can leave them on his 21st birthday. And because Frederick was born on February 29th, leap year, technically his 21st birthday isn't for decades. So the epigram or subtitle of Pirates of Penzance is the slave of duty. And because Frederick is indeed a slave of duty, he decides he must go back to the pirates and wait decades before he can come back and marry his his love, Mabel. And um, with that topsy-turvy plot and and twist, uh, hilarity ensues and we have lots of great singing and dancing and and comedy and a great time hopefully is had by all and and i don't want to have a spoiler alert but uh we do have a happy ending oh well we certainly need more of those in this day and age you mentioned lots of comedy and dancing much of your creative work has been as a choreographer you hold a prestigious position as chair of the dance program at New York University's Tisch School of the Arts. What made you turn to directing? Well, you know, as a choreographer, I'm music-driven. Some choreographers are interested in telling stories or being about movement invention. But I respond to musically, kinetically. Music makes me want to move. Now, the storytelling part that you need to to be if you're a director, I think, comes from maybe my Irish heritage. We're supposed to be good storytellers. And something about this love of music, I call music my best friend, this need, this want to tell a story vividly and clearly drew me to the opera. I like to say that I'm not a director choreographer, but rather I'm a choreographer director because I, I approach anything I direct from a, a place of, of movement, of, of human behavior, tell the story in the ways that people move. I do love coming to the opera because I call it creative crop rotation. I spend a lot of time training young contemporary dancers who do not tell stories, do not imitate scenes from life. They're more interested in, in dancing abstract contemporary dances. So that when I come to the opera, I get to deal with narrative and text and wordplay in the the Gilbert and Sullivan. And um, it nourishes me in a different way. So I'm very grateful that Atlanta Opera brought me in again to do this show. Mm. Santiago, you are a product of the Atlanta Opera's Studio Artists Program. I know everyone has tremendous pride in your achievements. And this is a debut role for you. How do you feel about the role of Frederick? It's really interesting, your question, because English is my third language. And I'm Argentinian and half Italian. 
So when I was proposed this role, I really thought about this. You know, it's um, it was really challenging. I always try to get into new projects that are going to put me in an uncomfortable place as an artist. And I think that it's uh, really interesting when you can create something in the language that is not your mother language, you know? And so for me, it was really challenging. But I, as, I told, uh, as I told before, it's really interesting when you are an artist, you are not comfortable. Uh, you have to push yourself to create something good. So I've been with help of uh, Sean and uh, Francesco trying to, you know, create a new version of this Frederick. You know, Frederick is a pirate. And if you think about a pirate, can come from everywhere. And I think that that's the idea. You know, I'm going to have an accent, of course. And I think that it's really interesting to try to move this character. Well, I have to say that Sean says that he's, he's 21. I am not. <laughs> <laughs> But, but I'm trying to do my best with that too. And I think it is really interesting for me to create a pirate uh, that can be from everywhere. You know, that's, that was the leitmotiv of this, my decision of doing, uh, doing this project. But you're not only singing in your third language, English, but this is British English. And, you know, many would argue unabashedly British. Do you try to use a British inflection? Well, I have to say that I speak English or I study English since I was six years old. In Argentina, I started. And the English that we learn in Argentina is the British one. Ah. So I was more familiar with this accent more than the American accent. So for me, at, at least, I have so many strange words, I have to say, <laughs> in the text, you know, in the speaking part. But uh, I have to be honest, it was really familiar for me, the, the accent. I, I speak since I was six years old. My parents sent me to uh, study English, uh, British English. Okay, can you give us some of those tricky words? Mata water (laughs) (laughs) for example (laughs) but you know i i've been coming to the u.s i lived in the in the u.s for five years and i just moved to europe recently so i'm more familiar right now with with american english but yes you know it's uh, i've been having a lot of help from sean from uh, megan the stage director and bruno Sean's assistant, so really helpful, and I think it's getting there, yeah. Great. If you are just joining us, this is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes, speaking with director Sean Curran and tenor Santiago Ballerini from the Atlanta Opera's production of The Pirates of Penzance. Sean, let's talk a bit about the music. There is the iconic aria sung by the modern major general. And I wondered if you could speak to the broad appeal of this style of singing music 
the way music is treated in the Gilbert and Sullivan opera. Sir Arthur Sullivan was the composer. You are so correct. There is a wit, there is an energy to the music, to the words, and it's a kind of music that tickles your eardrum, I like to say. So Gilbert and Sullivan are tickling your eardrums and Santiago and I hopefully are tickling your eyeballs with the way we stage the, the story and play the comedy. You're right about the major general. We're so fortunate that Kurt Oles is playing and singing the role of major general Stanley. And what a virtuoso. This is a very difficult, uh, what would be called a patter song. It's sung very quickly. The rhymes are so clever. There's a lot of vocabulary words in there. In, in fact, we've had to consult a dictionary several times to find out what some of these words actually mean. I am very good at integral and differential calculus. I know the scientific names of beings and in malculus. In short, in matters vegetable, animal, and mineral, I am the very model of a modern major general. <laughs> I know our mythic history, King Arthur's and Sicaradox, the answer hard acrostics have a pretty taste for paradox. In court in elegiacs, all the crimes of Helicabalus, in cornex I can flow peculiarities parabolus. I can tell undoubted Raphael some Derrida's and Sophonies, and know the cooking chorus from the frogs of Aristophanes, and I can hum a fugue of which you've heard the music's dinner for. Ooh, dinner for, dinner for. <laughs> And without giving away too much, we, we do something that uh, is a tradition wherein when Olds finishes this song, we give him an encore where we speed the tempo up so fast that it's imp nearly impossible to sing. But he does an incredible job of, of making it happen and land. It's a technical feat of virtuosity that's so impressive. But you know, the other thing I'll say about the music throughout the show is as a choreographer or as a teacher of young dancers, I, I always say, let the music be the motor. So the motor is the music for the dancing. But in, in our case, the music is a beautiful, tune-filled, wonderfully melodic motor for the storytelling. So many of the tunes are familiar that you might not even know they're from the Pirates of Penzance, but um, they glisten, they shimmer, they, they sparkle, filled with wit, filled with clever ideas. And it's a marvelous device for, for telling our story and giving it life and comedy. A few of those popular songs include Oh, Better Far to Live and Die, and With Cat-like Tread Upon Our Prey We Steal. Santiago, what's most fun for you to sing? Well, I have beautiful music, I have to say. You know, the, the role of Frederick is more like a lover and, and the writing, the music is more legato, is more expanded. So I have a, a great melodies. My favorite is the main aria that I have in the first act. And I think it's, um, yes, I'm enjoying so much that. And also, you know, to, to play with all the pirates, all the, you know, the dancing that Sean created. It's super fun, but I think that the area, the main area is, um, is there not one maiden breast? I think that's the, um, the, my favorite part to sing. Oh, is there not one maiden breast which does not fear the Oh, no. 
going back to Major General Stanley, I have often thought that rap and hip-hop are related to patter, as we hear in Gilbert and Sullivan, albeit originating a hundred years earlier. Does that seem far-fetched to you? No, it doesn't. In fact, rap, contemporary rap, is wordplay, is interesting rhymes, but also rhythm. There is uh, an uh, incredible attention to rhythm and, and how we say or speak or, in the Major General's case, sing something. So uh, I've never thought of it this way, but yes, I think that... Um, this, this kind of patter song that you're talking about is is maybe a great grandfather to the rap we're hearing today. And I got to say, I, I drive to rehearsal in a rent-a-car every day, and Atlanta has some great radio stations. I'm really enjoying, um, I'm listening to a lot of rap on my way to and from rehearsal in my car radio, and I am loving it. Okay, so maybe there is some subconscious imbuing of that in in your direction here. I, I think you actually created this entire production. Sean, am I correct in the impression I read that a book with a very funny title led you to this particular Gilbert and Sullivan opera. Was it a children's story? It was indeed, and I'm very impressed you have done your homework. The, the <laughs> production the production originated at Opera Theater of St. Louis, and when the, the folks there approached me to do a new production of Pirates of Penzance, I knew that with Gilbert and Sullivan, it's not something you want to handle roughly. In other words, you don't want to set the Pirates of Penzance in a, a modern era or a different time. So 1890s it was, I thought about the British Music Hall and vaudeville traditions, but I, I thought, what can I do to put my eccentric twist on the show? So. I went to a Barnes and Noble in New York City where I live, and I was surprised to find that there was actually a section on pirates. There were books about the history of the pirate flag, the Jolly Roger. There was books of modern pirates. There was, there was books about pirates in, in painting and art. But I went over to the children's section because I wanted to find Treasure Island and to see how that classic book for young men was illustrated. And there was a wonderful librarian type grandmotherly woman working there who was helping me. And I said, do you have any other books about pirates? And she said, well, do you know the book Pirates Don't Change Diapers? <laughs> and I thought I misunderstood or misheard her. And I said, what's that title again? And she said, Pirates Don't Wear Diapers. And she took me over to the section for very little children where I found a beautifully illustrated, vivid, bright, colorful book that was indeed called Pirates Don't Change Diapers. And I bought it on a lark, knowing that I would give it to a friend who had a, a little kid at the time. And when I showed it to the set and costume designer, James Shooty, he said, Sean, this is it. This is our way into our take on pirates. We do a set that is inspired by this vivid children's uh, book uh, with these colorful illustrations, these characters, but we do period friendly or what might be called period authentic costumes to kind of 
bump up against each other. So if there's something that's different about our production, I would say it is this wonderfully whimsical set, a juvenile kind of theater design of a set where our story lives. So yeah, research is always one of my favorite parts when I get an opera assignment. And uh, this was some very unexpected research to find a children's book about pirates and babies and diapers that would inform our set. <laughs> How delightful. There was a Broadway production of The Pirates of Penzance that had tremendous acclaim. Linda Ronstadt starred in it, and I believe Kevin Klein along with her. Gilbert and Sullivan operas have influenced the course of modern musical theater. Could you comment on the way Gilbert and Sullivan operas have influenced modern musical theater? Uh, Absolutely. You know, Pirates of Penzance, many of Gilbert and Sullivan's shows are considered operettas, and that is that they're not completely sung through. And uh, this connection between Gilbert and Sullivan, what they were doing over a hundred years ago and what you might go see on Broadway now is is a really uh, interesting one because in Pirates of Penzance and many of these Gilbert and Sullivan operas, they're not sung through. A song will end and we'll have a scene of dialogue. And in fact, for my wonderful cast, there's been a tremendous amount of dialogue to, to learn, so many lines to memorize. And a lot of the comedy and a lot of the topsy-turvy world that we, we are in comes out of these, these narrative bits uh, of, of spoken dialogue and text. So you know, when you think of an opera, you think of everything sung, aria to chorus number, maybe to quartet or whatever it is. But in Gilbert and Sullivan, the songs end. there's a button, as we say in showbiz, there's a big finish. Uh, the audience gets to show their approval by clapping. And then we're into what might be called a book scene. So, yeah, again, like we talked about contemporary music and rap, I think that Gilbert and Sullivan made a, a, a new way of being and doing when it comes to musical theater. And opera, of course, is the original musical theater, telling stories through music and singing and uh, clever wordplay. So it's all delicately interconnected. And, and, and that's that production you talked that was on Broadway that started at the public theater is iconic. I certainly had a look at that way back years ago when I first got this assignment and it really informed um, my approach. It's, it's brilliant. Mm, I wish I could have seen it. Do you know, is it available on film or streaming? It is indeed. A, a film version was made and um, it's out there. You can find it, I'm sure, in our interwebian world. It is delightful. It's charming. It's a film of the production. So they, they take you into the Broadway stage with many cameras. So you get to see the theater of it, which is part of its appeal and part of its cachet. It, it really is a brilliant piece of work. Director Sean Curran and tenor Santiago Ballerini, who portrays Frederick in The Pirates of Penzance. The Atlanta Opera production will be on stage at the Cobb Energy Performing Arts Center January 22nd, 25th, 28th, and 30th. 
More information, including COVID protocols, can be found on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. In a moment, we'll listen back to our 2020 interview with the legendary civil rights photographer, Steve Shapiro. Amplifying Atlanta, this is WABE. The field of mental health counseling is growing rapidly, and Richmond Graduate University can equip you with everything you need as a licensed professional counselor while integrating your faith into your clinical practice. Programs are offered in Atlanta, Chattanooga, and online. Apply today at richmont.edu. That's R-I-C-H-M-O-N-T dot E-D-U. You love free, and at Ameris Bank, so do we. That's why we're proud to offer worry-free, hassle-free Ameris Bank free checking. Manage your money your way with convenient access to digital, mobile, and telephone banking, all with no monthly service fee or minimum balance requirements. At Ameris Bank, we're with you. For more information or to open an account, visit our local bankers in person or online at amerisbank.com slash free checking. Other fees such as overdraft fees may apply. Ameris Bank, member FDIC, equal housing lender. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzis. Great to have you along. The American photographer Steve Shapiro died Saturday of pancreatic cancer. He was 87. The photojournalist was celebrated for his work documenting the American civil rights movement, capturing powerful moments, including the March on Washington and the aftermath of Dr. Martin Luther King Jr.'s assassination. In the summer of 2020, while our nation was again loudly fighting for civil rights, I was grateful for the opportunity to speak with Steve Shapiro. He was in town for a shared exhibition with Atlanta activist and photographer Sheila Prebright. Shapiro explained what it was like for him to witness the civil unrest that was happening that summer. Everything is different in a sense. It's the same, but it's very different in the sense that uh, in the 60s, the, uh, the movement was nonviolent, church-directed, and basically all the police were, and all the troopers were against the movement. I thought that they worked with protest in a very clever way, in the sense that protest to me succeeds when your opponent is baited to do something drastic, which happened with Bull Connor and other people like that. In other words, the Birmingham meeting in, in the park would never have been popular in any way without the dogs and the fire hoses being turned on people. So today we have a very different situation. Black Lives Matter starts out as a movement very similar. It's not totally church-driven, but it's a nonviolent movement, but we're having, and certainly 
the country has reflected on that and the enormous turnouts in all the cities has been fantastic. And it really showed so much support for the movement and for Black Lives Matter today. The only problem is that whereas in the civil rights period, the violence that did occur was occurred by the segregationists. And today, whereas we have such a pure movement of Black Lives Matter, we also have this other group which is zooming into what this is with violence and with, with just looting. I mean, I live in Chicago and there was this enormous looting where people came in on a cavalcade of SUVs and just looted stores, broke windows and everything else. And what happens is that's getting slightly confused with the Black Lives Matter, which everyone really loves. And that's a problem. So let's go on from there. Your mayor, Lori Lightfoot, made the point that these acts had nothing to do with rightful, peaceful protests, indeed. Now, your part of the exhibition is titled In Celebration of the Fire Next Time, Civil Rights Photographs from the 2019 publication of The Fire Next Time, which is an illustrated volume of James Baldwin's classic text. You knew James Baldwin very well, and I read that he was your introduction into civil rights. That's quite an auspicious introduction. Would you talk about how your relationship began? This was totally my introduction. What happened was um, <clears throat> Jimmy wrote a piece in the New Yorker, which later was turned into a good part of the fire next time. This was in, I believe, October 1962. I read it and I was very, very impressed with it and taken by it. I had started freelancing for Life magazine and I asked Life if I could do an essay on Baldwin. They agreed, he agreed, he was in Paris. He came back and we started traveling. He, he had a book tour throughout the South. And we started traveling together in January uh, 1963. And it was an enormous experience. I was a New Yorker who really had not come in real contact with what was happening in the South uh, and also in parts of the North. But it was an introduction to both leaders in the South, but also to the, the whole conditions that existed. And Baldwin was just amazing in his intellect and also the fact that we were always in a crisis mode so that it's, there's a number of people I've met in my life who really live on one crisis after another and it sort of motivates them and I think keeps them warm. And Jimmy certainly had that quality. Uh, we never made an airplane by more than a few seconds and sometimes we had a charter because we missed the airplane. And in general, it was like that. But we, we met with people like Medgar Evers, who we went to his house. And Medgar Evers put a 
towel over our rental car's license plate, which was more a joke than anything, in the sense that we knew that we were all on surveillance. And three months later, he was shot in his driveway and killed. I met with James Meredith and with uh, Jerome Smith, who was one of the original Freedom Riders. And basically, traveling with, with Jimmy, uh, I saw so much. And after that, I kept coming back to the South. And I was in various parts of the South. I covered the summer of 64. I did a lot of more, a lot more work with Jerome Smith. Uh, and we went to Ruleville. We saw Fannie Lou Hamer, who I was surprised to see her sitting there with a white doll. We saw so much of a situation where people who wanted to get the vote were turned away, even if they had a college degree. And people who, who were doing menial or other jobs for white people knew that when they went to try to register, there would be reprisals and they would probably lose their job. They probably or very possibly would have a cross burnt on their lawn or there might be a spray of bullets hitting them or something worse. Do you have nightmares about any of those moments? I didn't have nightmares about it, no, but it just really changed my whole attitudes about what I had seen and just the importance of, of what the movement was in terms of changing things in a nonviolent way. Would you talk about your portion of this exhibition and how it's related to Baldwin's The Fire Next Time? What the book really did uh, was, it, it's funny, we, we, I was working on another book with Nina Weiner and Larry Schiller, and they were at my house, and suddenly we were looking at the pictures from that I took between 1963 and 1968. And we figured, how can we get this published? And they came up with the idea of coupling it with James Baldwin's text. Uh, and it's worked out very, very well. Uh, the coupling, I think, has been successful. I asked you about nightmares. Your photograph of Dr. Martin Luther King's motel room right after his murder was chilling. What was it like to be there documenting the room just hours after he was killed? It was a very emotional experience. Um, I first went to the rooming house where the assailant had stood in the bathtub and leveled his gun on the windowsill. And I saw on the wall a black handprint that could only have been made by someone standing in the bathtub. And I made the assumption that that was the assailant's handprint in the sense that people don't usually stand in a bathtub and put a dirty hand on the wall. And life ran that picture uh, the following week. Um, I then went to the, uh, Dr. King's motel room in the Lorraine Motel and Hosea Williams let me in. And I saw on a ledge, 
Dr. King's attache case, and it had a number of things, including a, a magazine called Soul Force. And in the room on the ledge were old styrofoam cups and old rumpled shirts, and then a half-eaten sandwich. And then suddenly on the television, which was on that wall, the, behind the image of the announcer came the image of Dr. King. And I photographed that all as one image, all three parts. And to me, it was very, very emotional in the sense that the physical man was gone forever. His material things remained, and yet Dr. King hovered over, over us. And for me, this is one of the most emotional pictures I've taken. Civil rights photographer Steve Shapiro and Atlanta activist photographer and author Sheila Preed-Bright. The interview was recorded in the summer of 2020. We'll be back with more of that conversation in a moment. Amplifying Atlanta. This is 90.1 WABE. This is City Lights on WABE. I'm Lois Reitzes. Thank you for being here. If you're just joining us, we've been listening back to my interview with the Black Lives Matter photographer and author Sheila Preed-Bright and civil rights-era photographer Steve Shapiro. Shapiro passed away Saturday at the age of 87. During our conversation in the summer of 2020, Sheila Preet-Bright spoke about differences she's observed between the civil rights movement in the 60s and the current movement. I feel that there is a difference. Mr. Lonnie King, who started the Atlanta Student Movement, told me that when they took down the signs, he said racism didn't go anywhere. Okay, and so what's happening now is the result of that. And with me photographing in 2013 and being around the young people, they feel that they're fighting the same fights their parents and grandparents are fighting. And I can, if I could say this like this, when I first started in 2013 up into 2016, I think there's a very big difference now with George Floyd. And I see Generation Z. They are the ones that's pushing the envelope for this because they are wanting to hold people accountable. And they're the most diverse generation in history. And they're using their social media platform for that because everybody's tired, but they are the ones that's carrying this burden that they're going to have that's being, that they're inheriting. So the difference that I see is how they organize versus back in the 1963. It's just in a different shape and form. And as far as the violence is concerned, when I started in 2013, the violence was always with 
the police brutality with the police officers because in Ferguson, you have people in there that are called agitators and they're gonna get the crowd to move and do that. And then that's what starts the violent part of it. It's just right, like right now, with George, the death of George Floyd, you have a lot of protesters under the brand of Black Lives Matter, like the alt-right or whoever else is in there that's doing the looting. I was actually talking to one of the young people and here in Atlanta, when they had the protest here, it was on Friday, I wasn't there, but they actually told me this. They said that there was a group of people that didn't look like them, that started breaking the storefronts and all of that. And they asked them to stop. And they said, what y'all don't understand, we're trying to help you. And I thought that was very interesting for that. So under the umbrella now under Black Lives Matter, you're having a protest within a protest. You've been photographing the resurgence of the Black Lives Matter. Actually, you have documented it all along. And with the recent protests of the police killings of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, and so many other black men and women, you make an interesting point about how Generation Z which excites you very much because of their commitment, how they are putting their photos out on social media. And this has the potential to affect change because it's so emotional. You are an art photographer, and I'm wondering how the role of photography has changed since Steve Shapiro's days when a photographer accompanied Dr. King and other leaders along the path to the passage of the Civil Rights Act and the Voting Rights Act. How has your role changed? I think with the technology, it has changed that. Everybody is photographing and everybody is uploading their the imagery on their social media platforms to get the news out because generation, the young people, and I always say Generation Z, I'm saying Generation Z now, is that's where they go to get their news. It's not necessarily CNN, MSNBC, it's none of that. So technology and these social media platforms are the reasons why the role of photography is changing. And now since, I keep saying George Floyd, is you have a lot of young photographers are now saying, you don't need to show the protesters because you're putting them in harm ways. And I find that very, very interesting. So what they, there was a young man that written to ICP, International Center of Photography, and he wanted them to take down the recent protest images, or if they didn't take them down, is to blur the faces. So I had to think about that because I was saying, even back in Steve's day, 
it was the photograph that sh that had the power to change. And when you blur out the image, I don't think it has that same effect at all. So technology is what has changed us and everybody is photographing, you know, everybody is. Well, photography had a big effect in the 60s as well, in the sense that in Birmingham, when what would probably have been a peaceful uh, rally in a park because Bo Connor turned the dogs and hoses on everyone. And Charles Moore was a photographer there. And he did, he photographed all of this and Life Magazine ran it for eight pages. And suddenly America became aware of what was happening in the South. The civil rights movement was predominantly in the South. What's happened with, with George Floyd is that it's really caused the entire country. I mean, the, the marches throughout the country have been amazing, absolutely amazing. We just have to make sure that they don't get subverted by these violent things that happen. Yes, it went global. And I think for everybody to experience this on TV, even though we've constantly seen the imagery of black males or women being shot. This one was totally different to see the police officer on his neck and he's begging for his life. And what really got me and brought me to tears is when he called out his mother. And I was saying, this has to stop. And these young people keep seeing this. They're living in an age where I don't know at your age, Steve, is they're constantly seeing these images on social media and it's constantly happening even after George Floyd. I just saw a video about how this cop was hassling these young kids in, in a little town called Waycross, Georgia, and it's still not stopping. So can you understand, I'm not asking to you, but understand the trauma from generations to generation? I think about my ancestors, their trauma. I think about my parents' trauma because they grew up in Jim Crow era. I think about these young kids now and their trauma, and I thought about John Lewis and imagine his trauma. And it's nonstop. Steve, how did it feel for you to be photographing these very frightening, divisive times as a white man during the civil rights movement? Well, I photographed then, I still photograph. And I, I photographed Black Lives Matter, I photographed protests. All of this is something that we all have to work at. That's, that's all. And photographs do help in a big way. Both of your photographs have been shown side by side before at the High Museum in 2018. Sheila, that's when we last spoke. Why is it important for audiences to see these images side by side now as they will appear at Jackson Fine Art? I think is it's part of history in the making then and now. And I think we must not forget. Also, I think that with Steve's photographs and my photographs, 
we need to learn from that, you know, from generations to generation. And hopefully, and I keep talking about Generation Z, that this will not, I'm not going to say it's not going to happen again, but I think it's perpetual. But to keep it in the minds and hearts of people, even though it's traumatic to look at these images and to experience this. And I think it's good for younger people. I think we need to start at three years old on up in secondary schools for them to learn of this. Because I know when I was growing up, I didn't know too much about the civil rights movement. And I think it's time now for us to deal with the reality of this. And I don't think that this country has dealt with the reality of this. No. Sheila, I spoke with the education director at the High Museum, along with the children's book author, Andrea Davis Pinckney, the other day. And the High will open an exhibition this weekend of 80 works depicting illustrations from children's books about the civil rights movement. And some of these are picture books, little story books that you would read to a three or four-year-old. And they talking with them was very inspiring because they've said children process much more than we imagine about strife and struggle. And if you can present it to them in a way that isn't terrifying, but is serious, they get it. Right. I believe that because at the age of three, that's when they start learning about self. And at the age of six, they know who they are. So I think it has to start that early. Children are natural geniuses, and it's a question of, of how we deal with how we how we teach them or what they see in terms of how they form themselves. I know that you both will give a virtual artist talk over Instagram this Friday for the opening at the gallery. What will you be discussing? <laughs> I think we'll be discussing the work and our experience. And I will learn from you, Steve. I will actually learn from you. Um, no, you learn from the world. You learn from our civilization. You learn from where we are today. You learn from the problems we have today, the incessant problems that are still there. That's what you learned from. Civil rights photographer Steve Shapiro and Black Lives Matter photographer and author Sheila Pre-Bright. The interview was recorded in the summer of 2020. Steve Shapiro died Saturday from pancreatic cancer. He was 87. More information is available on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. You've been listening to City Lights, our daily exploration of arts and culture. Catch an encore broadcast tonight at 9. 
Monday at 11 a.m., we'll hear from the director and star of the theatrical production, Closer, on stage next weekend at the Windmill Arts Center in East Point. Plus, City Lights producer Summer Evans catches up with Atlanta musician Lecrae to discuss his new collaborative album with 1K Few, No Church in a While. If you missed part of today's show, you can catch up on our website, wabe.org slash citylights. There you will find our complete archive of interviews, so you can listen to City Lights on your schedule. Our theme music is the first time written and performed by Joe Granston with his jazz band, courtesy of Hot Shoe Records. City Lights senior producer is Kim Drobes. Summer Evans is our producer, and our engineer is Shelley Canavy. I'm your host, Lois Reitzes. We want you to connect with City Lights on social media. Share your feedback with us on Facebook at WABE City Lights, or check out our pictures and videos on Instagram, where we are at City Lights underscore Lois Reitzes. And of course, I would absolutely love it if you'd follow me on Twitter at L-O-I-S-R-E-I-T-Z-E-S. Thank you for listening to WABE at last. Hi, it's Terry Gross, the host of Fresh Air. We bring you in-depth, long-form interviews with actors, directors, musicians, authors, journalists, and more. Listen to our Peabody Award-winning Fresh Air podcast from WHYY and NPR. The world is full of mysteries. Are ghosts real? Is that yogurt expired? Hey, the unknown can be scary. But when you donate to WABE, you know where your money is going. Your gift supports the journalism that keeps you informed and the programs that pull back the curtain on complicated stories. Help us make the world less mysterious. Become a member now. Go online to wabe.org slash donate. And thanks.